Hello and welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here again to answer questions on meditation. Meditation, Buddhism, and practice of mindfulness in daily life. So as usual, for the first 15 minutes, we'll have a silent meditation where during that time people can post questions in the chat. Once you've posted your question, then just spend the time clearing your mind, cultivating mindfulness, preparing for the rest of the session, which is where we will answer people's questions. So until the quarter after the hour, we now have silent meditation.
Okay, we're back. I see we have some questions. We'll organize questions as usual by tier, focusing on questions that are related to meditation practice that are practical and um, personally important to the person asking so that an answer is of some practical benefit. And if it turns out that there aren't many questions or if there's a lot of questions getting far afield, like last week, we might just uh, end early. So please, if you have questions about your practice, you're welcome to submit them. Thank you, Bunty. We do have questions. I do a combination of risings, fallings, counting the breaths, watching the mind, listening to the silent sound, aware of the body or body scanning. Is that okay? Um, I mean, not for, not for a course that I would teach or probably a course that anyone would teach. Uh, w one huge problem with combinations are simply that they become preferences. And um, so you, you switch when, the, when it suits your whim. And that can be based on partiality, can be, become problematic. Uh, I mean, anything that, that is self-created can easily become problematic. If it's enforced upon you from the outside, then it has to be independent of your whims, your desires, your partiality, so it's always preferred. Um, another problem, of course, with combinations is that you're taking a lot longer to become skilled at any one given technique. Uh, you, you'd have to provide some explanation as to what, when and why you were switching from one technique to another. And the rationale would have to be far more complex than is desired. It's much more desirable to stick to a single technique because it becomes uh, monotonous in a sense, meaning it becomes hard for the mind to sustain its uh, excitement, its enjoyment, and so on. And so the, the mind starts to show its true colors of getting bored, of getting frustrated, of disliking the practice, and those sorts of things, which are important. It's important to see those habits of mind to have them rear their ugly heads so you can deal with them if you're uh, engaged in a combination like that it's just far too easy to um, enjoy yourself not that happiness is a problem or a bad thing it's just it becomes a um, an escape that you're not actually facing your problems you're not actually facing your experiences And some some techniques might be preferable to others, might be more effective. I can't even say that all the ones you've listed there are equally valuable. So it's, I mean, I don't have a lot to say. It, is it okay? Um, it's okay for you if it's not going to probably hurt you in any way. But it's certainly not how I would teach, and you wouldn't be allowed to do that sort of thing if you were doing a course with pretty much any reputable meditation teacher. 
I mean, that's maybe not fair. Some meditation teachers are pretty lax and will just let you do whatever you want, but not uh, not this tradition, certainly. How do I make the effort to stay mindful and note throughout the day with judging myself and causing emotional pain? I mean, without judging yourself? And that's meant to be without, or it's just saying that you throughout the day judge yourself and cause emotional pain. So how can you be mindful when that's going on? Well, I have no magic answer for you. I mean, a question like this seems sounds like it's asking for a a uh, asking for me to fix your problems. Um, you know, your your problems are not. Uh, I mean, there's no practice that, that lets you practice without problems. Mindfulness is challenging, it's difficult. And so really the answer is uh, the same way you would make effort with, without those issues. Or um, you would practice even though those issues do arise. So you, there's, no, there's no answer to your question. If your answer is a way to practice without those things, then, well, there is no answer. For practice is to face things, including those things, to face experiences. So I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to be mindful. That's the way. That's the how-to. recommend reading that and... If you want, you can do an at-home course. We always have slots available for people who are interested in doing the at-home course free, free of charge. I am dealing with very strong laziness paired with anxiety lately, and this makes me skip to practice. Then I feel very bad and depressed, and so next morning is worse. How can I break that spiraling? I guess I wouldn't worry. Wouldn't see it as a spiraling. I would try when you have the opportunity to feel bad. Try and take that as instead as an opportunity to then be mindful. Uh, there's no quick shortcut. Uh, eventually, you're just going to have to do it. One hint that I would give, and I think it's a generally useful hint, is that it's always harder to want to meditate than it is to actually do it. So sometimes you can just start even when you don't want to. Even when you're feeling lazy, uh, even when you're anxious, even when you think the practice is not going to work, uh, find a way to, to, to try it you know, and start working at that. Make goals to, to do some amount of meditation every day and try to uh, make it happen. I mean, not everyone is going to be able to do it. Some people are going to fail and might fail quite continuously. So I guess one other thing is that there is no time limit except for death. And so I don't feel any pressure that you have to do so much, and, and if you don't, then it's too late and you're a failure. Whenever you have the chance, just forget about the past and, and begin anew. I have no reassurances for you. It's quite possible that you're going to fail and not become very mindful, and you might even die unmindful. I don't have any way of fixing that for you. That in and of itself should be a kick in the pants to make you realize that you got to do it on your, on your own, and you really got to... There's nobody going to save you. 
and there's no happily ever after. It's not going to all work out in the end. It may very well not. There is no end, in fact, so it's just going to keep going. And that's kind of a reassurance that even if you don't do it now, one great reassurance is that whatever you do do, whatever you do undertake to practice in a good way is, is going to benefit you in the long run with no time limit. So it's all, it's all changing you. It's all changing your path. If not in this life, then in future life. So even just uh, promoting meditation to yourself and to others, even just reading and learning about meditation, you can consider those as wholesome acts. Uh, they're not, of course, on par with actually doing the meditation or committing yourself to it. But any little bit of mindfulness you can perform, any small act of clarity is... Uh, is a drop in the bucket. Doesn't disappear. How do you meditate to accept death? I guess probably accept death isn't what what uh, isn't encouraged. Death is to be appreciated and to understood but i don't know about accepting it per se simply because death is a is something you can use as a reminder to hurry up that it's not something you should accept you, you shouldn't just say oh well i'm gonna die so i don't have to do anything which i i'm i'm, I'm sure that's not what you were what you meant but just that acceptance is probably not the right attitude um let go of fear of death might be a better question. How do you let go of your fear or anxiety of death? And part of the fear is the knowledge that you might die unmindful. And that knowledge is not bad. That appreciation and awareness is not bad. Fear, of course, is always bad. But the way you deal with fear is to be mindful of it, to become more familiar with it and the things that you're afraid of, including death. And you realize that fear is not the correct response, it's not a beneficial response, and so you just abandon the fear. You just don't give rise to the fear in, in the future. But how you should approach death is you should, you should um, recognize it, you should appreciate it, appreciate the weight of it, uh, respect death, and respect that uh, it's important there's an importance to being ready for death and that you may very well not be ready for death. And if you're not, then you really should put a lot of effort into being ready for things like death. In daily walking in the street, I have trouble noting three movements, lifting, moving, putting. Is it just impossible or can this threefold noting come with practice? I feel this kind of noting can be beneficial. Right, it can be beneficial, but not in getting where you need to get. So I absolutely wouldn't recommend practicing that while walking in the street. When you're walking in the street, a recommended practice would be to say walking, walking, or right, left, right, left. But... No, I mean, obviously it's not impossible. You just would look really strange to other people. You would um, not get anywhere very quickly, probably miss appointments and stuff. 
have a hard time living your life depending on how you were living. Now, I do know people in meditation centers who have done that, but to be clear, the only time you would do that is if you were actually separating the foot step into three parts. That would be lifting straight up and then break, having a break before you start to move the foot forward, straightening the leg out, and then take another break and then placing straight down. That's the only time you would say lifting, moving, placing. When it was actually a three-part, three-step step, a three-part step. Does one know for sure when one gets sotapanna? I th uh, it's hard to say for sure. There's a certainty of something, but the certainty of whether that is sotapanna isn't isn't there no there, there's there's no certainty that what you've gained is what you read about in the texts but there's a certainty of your state of mind that your mind is free from certain things that your mind is free from doubt in the buddha's teaching that your mind is free from any kind of misunderstanding about what is the practice that leads to enlightenment and any kind of wrong view about uh, the existence of a self about the cause of suffering and so on. What is your view on music in general on the path? I listen to it a lot, but sometimes wonder if it's a problem or indulgence. Is it okay? I mean, you don't have... I, I wouldn't ask for my view because I'm. it would be very wrong of me to give my view. Uh, the, the Buddhist view on music is that it's entertainment, it's a cause, and not just a cause, it's it's a, an activity involving liking, desire, attachment, sensual pleasure, sensual desire. And so it's conducive of addiction, it's a hindrance on the path. Now, hindrances on the path are not all the same, and I guess it being it being described as a hindrance on the path is different from being an uh, an obstacle on the path so a hindrance in this sense just means that it slows you down it doesn't necessarily prevent you from practicing or block you on the path other things do that like killing stealing cheating lying drugs and alcohol those literally block you from progressing but music isn't in that category music is in the category of things that hinder your practice so an excess is going to bring it all but to a standstill, whereas moderation is just going to moderately uh, hold you back or slow you down. Assuming that you're also spending time practicing mindfulness. How to deal with intrusive, anxious thoughts according to the Buddhist perspective? Noting such thoughts in meditation makes them weaker, but it's impossible to note them all the time in daily life. So thoughts are not... Um, intrusive is probably not accurate, though it's not terrible. Anxious is not an adjective you can use for thoughts. Thoughts themselves are not anxious. And why I make this distinction is because the goal isn't really to get rid of thoughts. 
I mean, thinking is the activity of the mind. It's always going to be there. Even the Buddha had thoughts, not all the time. I mean, he did enter into certain meditative states, and you can enter into meditative states without them. But in ordinary life, the Buddha had thoughts. Uh, the, the, so really, thoughts should not be your focus in terms of what you should be trying to get rid of. You should be trying to get rid of your anxiety, which is completely separate from the thoughts. And that's an important doctrine for you to keep in mind because um, it allows you to... Well, it, it, simple, simple mindfulness requires that you recognize things for what they are, that thoughts are just thoughts, that anxiety is anxiety, and that they are not one and the same. If you aren't able to recognize that, then you won't be able to actually grasp and be mindful of of realities. So when you're thinking, just note thinking without any idea that you should stop thinking. When you're anxious, you just note anxious, also with no idea of stopping the anxious. That shouldn't be your focus. But just note anxious, anxious, and also note the physical man of physical byproducts of anxiety as separate from the anxiety. That's important as well. I need to go to a meditation center to do an intensive practice. The center does not teach the noting technique, but I will go ahead and practice it. Do you have any advice? At the end of the course, may I report to you? Well, my advice is always to have regular uh, regular dialogue with the teacher. So if you're doing a long course without that, or you're doing a technique without anyone to guide you, it really depends on you. It's probably not dangerous, um, though it can be if you mispractice, if you start not practicing according to the technique, like noting uh, things that are not real or noting because you want to create things. You know, For example, just as an example, you, you might do those things and then you're no longer practicing mindfulness at all. And because you don't have a teacher, it's easy. To, it's possible for that to happen. Most people, it's not possible. For most people, the worst that would happen is you just get scared and and stop practicing, or you're not able to complete it. For some people, it can actually be quite beneficial. They're able to self teach them, teach them, to self teach themselves, and they're able to teach themselves, um, meaning guide themselves through a meditation course. So maybe you're one of those people. How often should one use guided meditations? I don't recommend guided meditation. I don't think you should use them. I think it's a crutch. Um, I suppose if you're a person who just is unable to practice without being guided, then use that in the beginning, but understand that you're relying on a crutch, that you, to progress you have to give up. You should give up. You don't have to. You should simply because it's more powerful and more challenging to practice on your own. We practice guided meditation because it's easier. And that's generally a red flag. You don't want to be engaging in practices because they are easier than the alternative. You want to be challenging yourself. And that's one of the great things about being in contact with the teacher is they will challenge you. So that's another thing I could say to the last question is it's harder to challenge yourself. Much easier for a teacher to push you a little further to know uh, what you're capable of and, and how far you can be challenged.
So guided meditations are not really challenging. And they're distracting, even though they might not seem distracting. They are uh, reducing your... Mm, reducing your... level of attention to ultimate reality. I know it's not your tradition, but can loving-kindness meditation be beneficial? Well, loving-kindness meditation isn't a tradition, it's a meditation practice, and our tradition does Many people in our tradition do practice metta meditation, and they do because it can be beneficial. Now, a little more probably what you're really thinking about with this question is that it is even the sort of thing you can practice while doing mindfulness practice because it's an auxiliary sort of practice. It's very useful for people who have anger issues as a sort of auxiliary support, a supplemental practice to mindfulness. You can do it before you practice mindfulness, after you practice mindfulness. You can just do it randomly through the day. It's it's all good. Quite beneficial. Gives you a positive, uh, uh, kind, kind outlook. Makes you a nicer person. I have some non-attachment for someone I care about in the difficult situation they are going through. It seems the non-attachment is from aversion to the feelings, but also I realize the feelings are unskillful. Am I doing something wrong, or is there something I should focus on or look for? I don't know how you can possibly have non-attachment. I assume that's a euphemism or your 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 there's no good word in English. I know there's a way to say it, but in Thai they say kao kang ing, which means get on your own side, take your own side in an argument. Meaning you're calling it non-attachment, that's actually a positive way of saying what it sounds like you don't like something. So aversion and non-attachment are very, very different things. Uh, aversion is a kind of attachment, honestly, practically speaking. So if you have aversion, you should note the aversion. Uh, so, yeah, if there's feelings that are, I don't know what unskillful means, if you have unwholesome feelings, uh, well, aversion is just another one. So you're piling unwholesomeness on top of unwholesomeness. If your feelings are, I mean, I don't know about the word feelings. Feelings is too vague, unskillful. Yeah, maybe you mean unwholesome. Akusala is the word you may be thinking of, but feelings, I don't use that word to mean things that can be akusala. Feelings are just sensations in the body. But in English, the word feelings can also mean emotions, and emotions are usually ethically charged. So if there's akusala, akusala, I don't know, jetasika, which what it would be, then it would be unwholesome states of mind. Well, aversion is just piling more on top of that. So I would try to be mindful of the aversion. But you have to be a little more specific and objective about what you mean by non-attachment. Because for you to have something means actually you don't have it, it arises. Um, 
And whatever that thing that arises, you have to be aware of what that is. You have to be clear about what that is. I mean, it can just be in some cases a perception that you don't care. And so it's kind of an equanimity. But equanimity is dangerous. Equanimity can be associated with conceit and ego and wrong views. I'm not saying yours is, but I'm not trying to accuse you of that. But it, you have to be careful because it can be. Equanimity is not sufficient to described to label something as wholesome, as positive, as beneficial. Um, yeah, to have to have non-attachment honestly means just to to well, honestly, to be mindful of that you are very mindful of your experiences. That's what it would really mean to be to have non-attachment. In which case, there would be no aversion, there would be no unwholesome states of mind, that sort of thing. In Brazilian Portuguese, mindfulness is translated as atenção plena, which means full attention. Is that a bad translation of the term? Uh, full attention, plena, I understand that, atenção, however you say that. No, uh, I would say, I mean, it's kind of splitting hairs because full attention, attention is good, but full attention is a better translation of sampajanya. And this is a good example of how mindfulness is not very well understood. The word mindfulness literally, literally, etymologically, has nothing to do with attention. Uh, there's nothing about it that is full. Uh, so mindfulness is not a great translation either. Uh, Sati mean, means uh, the ability to accurately recognize something, to accurately, to respond with accuracy to an experience. I mean, that's basically how I would describe it. So, for example, it's like uh, if you're taking a test and some and there's a, a picture of something or or some diagram or something in in whatever subject, and the question is, what is this? The ability to answer, this is a cat, or this is uh, the Einstein's theory of relativity, or, or, or something like that. Uh, that's, that's sort of the, kind of like what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is when you feel pain, and you ab you're able to recognize it as pain, not just as a label, but that's how you perceive it, that you perceive it as pain. And this is why the word sati is used, sati meaning to remember. You remember what it is. And it's not literally like that. It's not literally, oh yeah, I remember, this is pain. It's that it, it's the, the word is, that word is used, and that, the word remembrance is used to describe a state where you have that capacity to see the experience just as it is, not as something else. So if you said if you saw a picture of a cat and you wrote down dog as the answer that's wrong. Now in in mindfulness if if you see something and you say hearing that's not the problem that mindfulness is trying to to fix. The problem is if you don't when you see and you don't say seeing and you aren't perceiving it as seeing instead there's going to be a liking of it, a judgment of it, a, an extrapolation of it. There's a lot of things that aren't mindfulness. Mindfulness is a means of, of dispelling those, of preventing those, of replacing those. 
So it's not really easy to find a word that conveys the meaning. And so mindfulness is as good a word as any simply because we make it mean what it's supposed to mean. But it's important that you make it mean the right thing and you understand that it isn't the same as something like full attention. No, the, the, the word sati is meant to uh, refer to that aspect of grasping the object properly. Like if you, uh, if you have a, a, a power tool or a knife, let's say, and you grab it by the blade, that's how we normally approach experience. We're always grabbing knives by the blade and hurting ourselves. Mindfulness is the proper grasp of the object. When there's pain, you grasp it as pain. And that proper grasp is without any judgment, without any extrapolation, without any uh, clinging or any need to change or, 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 or uh, maintain either either change or maintain, simply uh, observing. It's what allows for full attention. Full attention is allowed as a result, is cultivated as a result, or together with mindfulness. What should I do when noting hindrances gets too fast? Noticing becomes faster than pronouncing labels. It's like labeling with words slows down the process. Well, if there's many different hindrances, you might note distracted or overwhelmed. It's not a magic trick that you have to note everything. It's not uh, some kind of computer game where you have to get better reflexes. You're trying to cultivate the proper state of mind. So over time, you'll find you sort everything out and you're, you're much better equipped to note things as they come in the beginning if there's a lot you can note distracted or overwhelmed or just know whatever is clearest after about two hours of vipassana meditation a day i get tired and my mind is tense should i increase the time of meditation slowly I don't know, are you doing walking and sitting? Because if you do just sitting, it might be harder to stay energetic. Um, I would recommend splitting it up, so doing some in the morning and some in the evening. Uh, but you know, it, making you tired, usually a sign that it's inefficient, that you're not actually being mindful a bit in those two hours. So two hours really doesn't say anything. You can't actually, and the important thing isn't actually that you're practicing two hours. The important thing is about being mindful moment to moment. And how many moments are you actually mindful of in those two hours? That's what's important. Setting timers is, uh, is beneficial, but only as a means of keeping you in a framework wherein you have the opportunity to cultivate these moments of mindfulness. It's not actually the practice. The practice is the moments. And focus on those. If you're tired and your mind is tense, well, you may not be noting those as you should. You may not be as mindful as uh, as often as as you could be. Is it skillful to sometimes selectively be mindful of whatever is pleasant in the present moment as a way of encouraging presence? Or could that lead to unskillful attachment? If 
funny question. I'm not quite sure what you're asking, though I get an inkling that you might be asking, should I focus only on what is pleasant because that will make me happy? Is that the idea? As a way of encouraging presence because somehow the happiness would encourage you to practice more, and if you had to focus on what was unpleasant, you would be discouraged. No, that's, yes, if that's what you're asking, then that would lead very much to unskillful attachment, unwholesome attachment. Uh, I don't know about this word, unskillful. Um, yeah, you would be developing quite a strong partiality. You would be, you would be making it easier. Uh, and I'm not sure that's all you'd be doing, but part of what you would be doing would be making it easier. And again, that's not ever what we want to be doing. Um, you would be much better served to just do a little less. Um, if you're if you're overwhelmed by un unpleasant sensations, but the whole 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 core 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 point of or or idea behind practicing mindfulness is objectivity is to face whatever comes. That's that's central. And if you're not doing that, you've missed the whole central point. So you can't get benefit anyway, even though you're not doing that, right? It's one of those things that is in, um, I don't know, what is the word? It is essential. And so, yeah, don't focus selectively on anything pleasant or unpleasant. You wouldn't want to go the other way either. But it's a core aspect of the practice that you begin to have a non-selective uh, presence and approach so that you're able to face anything that comes without selection. How are hindrances different from fetters? Can we use fetters as objects of meditation in Dhammanupassana? Well, hindrances are fetters, but no, you use the you use the teachings that are given. I mean, I mean, what I mean by that is use the framework that you're given. Fetters are just another framework for the hindrances, essentially. But the ones you're given are the hindrances, and the reason for that is because they're more practical. Fetters are more theoretical. Hindrances are much more focused on the experience that you have. Now, the hindrances themselves can be extrapolated upon, like liking and wanting are first one. Disliking, frustration, boredom, sadness, fear are all in the second one, and depression. The third one is drowsiness, tiredness, laziness. The fourth one, worry, restlessness, distraction. The fifth one, doubt and confusion. So all of those are sort of the things you should be using. I don't know what you feel is missing from them that you need to use the fetters, but I don't think there is anything. If sensual lust is possible only in material realm, how is ruparaga different from kamaraga? Uh, 
Um, yeah, I don't know exactly about Rupa Raga, but um, because of the use of the word Raga, which is, of course, I mean, it's a good point. It's a, it's a strange use of the word Raga, which usually means something like passion or lust. But it simply means desire for form. And so you could kind of um, find examples of that in ordinary life where we have um, attachment to some state, some state of existence, like wanting to be famous, for example, or, or liking the idea of being this or being that. Bhavatanha is probably a little more accurate. Bhavatanha is desire for becoming Rupa Raga, Arupa Raga. I don't know that Rupa and Arupa, they may be synonymous with Bhavatanha and Vibhavatanha, though I'm not sure that they are. Anyway, I don't know. It's kind of a this is a this is no longer a practical question. I'm not so interested in answering or figuring that all out. You know, if you want something, just say wanting. If you like something, say liking. It doesn't really matter which it is. But I mean, the point is that Rupa Raga relates not to the sensual realm. It relates to desire for form, which I think might be the same as desire for becoming. That's a good question in that sense. What exactly is Rupa Raga? Kind of negligent in my understanding. I used to have an idea, but it's not something I think about a lot. In noting sexual urges, I've been trying to restrain myself from masturbating, but I still fail. Granted, I've had some success differentiating the feeling from the female, but it still overtakes me. Do you have any advice? Well, the best advice is intensive formal meditation practice. I mean, it's just so hard to give up our addictions without really dedicating yourself to changing who, you, changing the way your mind works. But barring that, it sounds like you're making some progress. Remember, the fo the focus is to learn and understand rather than to root out and and destroy. The rooting out and destroying has to come from understanding. So your focus should always be on, really, on mindfulness, which is is even a step remove, further removed, because mindfulness is what leads to seeing clearly. It leads leads to understanding. So you don't even focus on understanding; just focus on mindfulness, on recognizing things as they are. It sounds like you're doing some. Fail is not you. Fail is is not real. Um. You know, fail is caught up in this idea that you can somehow stop things from happening, that you are in charge. So what you're seeing is non-self, and that's important. Your focus, again, should just be on mindfulness. Because the truth is, if you're mindful, you can't engage in sexual urges. I mean, the, the sexual urge just doesn't arise, can't arise at the moment of mindfulness. And so the habit of mindfulness begins to replace the things like sexual urge. It can't arise because there's no delusion. So just be mindful and you'll find you get a new perspective on old things. I live in sleep next to a busy street where traffic noise is constant. I do not dare to move because I do not have enough money to. Any advice on how to reduce the stress 
the traffic noise causes me? Well, the good news, and it's a smarmy sort of answer, but the good news is the traffic noise doesn't cause you any stress. The traffic noise, noise is not causing you any stress. That's the great news. The great news is that you're living in a stress-free environment, that your environment is completely stress-free. Aren't you so happy? It's an important point because experiences can't bring stress. They don't cause stress. Experiences, well, it depends how you define experience, but these, the kind of experience you're talking about, sound, sound cannot cause stress. It isn't capable of it. It can cause physical stress, right? right? Like really loud sound can burst your eardrums, or I don't know what else it could do, but I guess bursting your eardrums is probably the worst of it might be able to cause brain trauma if it's very loud. I don't know, but yeah, let's say bursting your eardrums. But it cannot cause mental stress. Uh, mental stress is a, is a product of your own reactions to experiences, your own lack of mindfulness, which, I mean, it sound, I sound very, very... Um, critical but i don't i don't i'm not trying to be critical this isn't meant to be criti a criticism at all it's just an explanation so the explanation that that the sound isn't actually the problem at all the problem is the judging of the sound the reacting to the sound and over time that reaction builds it, through lack of mindfulness it grows it feeds it, it is fed by the power that you, the emotion that you invest in it. So, I don't know if you read our booklet on how to be mindful, but that's what I would recommend. Start reading the booklet and try to be mindful of the sound as hearing, be mindful of the stress as stress, the disliking of the sound as disliking, and so on. And you should find that, voila, you're actually be able to be free from stress, that you'll realize that it wasn't actually the noise at all. And you find that, to your delight and surprise, you were living in a stress-free environment the whole time. When I am about to engage in a pleasurable activity, I don't want to note because it reduces the pleasure I experience. How do I deal with this? It's kind of an intellectual problem. It's not a real practical problem. You maybe can convince yourself of this, or you can... I, well, I mean, it's kind of a clever question. I mean, it can be. I don't, I don't know your state of mind, but it can be a clever question where it's kind of clever to ask this. Uh, and, and, and certainly people, we come up with this idea where in our minds we think, yeah, hey, if I'm mindful, I'm going to... Uh, it's going to reduce the pleasure. But what mindfulness actually does is show you the truth that these things that you're clinging to are not worth clinging to. It's it's freeing, it's liberating, it makes you happier. So it's not a it's not a valid I mean it's a valid question. It's the kind of question that gets asked, but it's a more it's something that you convince yourself of or you come up with as kind of a philosophical idea. But it's not actually real. It has no basis in reality. Mindfulness isn't some um policeman who come, police person who comes in and and prevents you gets in your way or puts you in jail so that you can't do what you want 
mindfulness is liberating it helps you see more clearly and so it feels actually quite relieving to not desire the pleasure the the actual result is liberating and and happy So, okay, so I mean, what, what my my advice? I mean, I'm not trying to trivialize what you say because it is a common question. You're you're not the only one to ask this. Is to um, you know, focus on on actual practice and and don't worry so much about what the results are going to be. It, this often is somehow related to the worries about things like nibbana. Like if I have to let go, what about all the things I love? Right? It's like putting the cart before the horse. It's it's kind of silly because. The only reason you let go is because you realize it for yourself that it wasn't worth clinging to in the first place. So I would recommend noting worry, noting fear, noting aversion, all those things. And and one useful aspect of that is to remind yourself of, of uh, or not remind yourself, but pay attention to that state of not wanting to meditate, for example, not wanting to note because that state is is stressful, is unpleasant. And when you focus on that and are able to see that for what it is, then it will never arise either. So there'll be no aversion or worry or fear or whatever it might be. Ante, we've crossed the hour and we've asked all the tier one questions that were prepared. Okay, thank you all. Thank you, Chris and Jim, for your help. Thanks, everyone, for your questions. Good questions. I appreciate it. Appreciate your interest and uh, wish you all beneficial practice and progress on the path. And may you all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.